Hey, Fixing Fundraising fans, it's Tom here. Welcome back to Fixing Fundraising. This is the first episode of season three. We've mixed things up a little bit and introduced a new segment, so enjoy that. But in this episode, we spoke to Rosie, Rosie Oldham, who is the head of fundraising at London Wildlife Trust. She spent uh, about six and a half years there and had multiple different roles. She's got 10 years experience in fundraising for all kinds of causes, including education, children and young people, health and the environment. She's a volunteer at the FSI's Advice Hub, and she recently joined the Institute of Fundraising's Cultural Sector Network Committee. Rosie also has spent a lot of time holding organisations to account around salary and almost prophetically when we recorded this episode, the uh, show The Salary Movement was in its infancy uh, and actually now these days things move quite quickly and already we've seen uh, great progress on the uh, Show The Salary Movement, which is fantastic. So I just wanted to add Show The Salary has been launched since since our episode was recorded uh and we don't know who it is but we'd like to thank them and i'm sure rosie would do too for their incredible work incredible progress on making real change in the sector so that's what you have in store for this week's episode enjoy and as always you can find us at fixing fund pod on twitter to get involved in the conversation happy listening Hello and welcome back to Fixing Fundraising. I'm joined as ever by my co-host Tom Dufresne. Hello Andy. And the incredible Rosie Oldham. Hi. Hi Rosie. Rosie, thanks so much for uh, coming on today. What is it that you want to fix in fundraising? Um, so thanks for having me. Um, I love this podcast. The thing I want to fix in fundraising is, or in the charity sector in general as well, I suppose, is the charity sector not making an effort to make our recruitment more inclusive, which sounds like a bit of a mouthful. Um, but particularly with regards to requiring a degree for fundraising and other charity roles, which is a completely unnecessary barrier. Um, not disclosing salaries on job adverts and instead saying something like competitive or contact us to chat about this um, and requiring current or most recent salary on job applications, which I'm also seeing everywhere. Um, and I'm feeling quite fired up about it at the moment, particularly because I've seen some ridiculous examples of this today. Um, and I'm just seeing so many per day and it's it's making me incredibly angry. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot coming through at the moment, right? And yeah, it's so tempting to apply for those jobs, being like, "Oh yeah, I have competitive experience. You can contact me and ask me about it." But what? Yeah. That, that would be hilarious, Andy. You should definitely carve out half a day to do that. <laughs> apply for all jobs with a CV saying competitive experience. <laughs> experience available on request. <laughs> <laughs> Someone should do that and waste their time as much as the. The time of potential applicants have been wasted. Oh. How do you, um, in general, Rosie? How do you do? You see this on uh, entry level uh, fundraising jobs. Do you see it on service delivery jobs? Like, what are the kind of have you have you seen any kind of patterns when you've been when you've been raging against the machine? I've seen it on. I've honestly seen it on all level jobs. Um, I think maybe the type of problem 
between those three I've just outlined varies between the different levels so not disclosing salary definitely happens more at the senior level jobs um so and also I should just say like none of these I'm not even looking for a job I just obsessively look at job notifications I get sent to see if they're doing any of these practices (laughs) um and so often the response I get when I like call them out on Twitter or email them is, oh, are you interested in the job? I'm happy to talk to you about salary. I'm like, no, I'm not interested in the job. <laughs> I'm just trying to ask you. <laughs> I'm trying to shame you here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so frustrating. Um, but definitely the not disclosing salary happens more at senior level, although I have seen it at entry level jobs as well. Um, and I guess in a way that's part of the problem with that particular one, because if you look at the senior levels of charities and the senior levels of fundraising teams, that's where you tend to be, um, you know, it's the pe- it's, it tends to be men in those roles um, and it tends to be harder for people from more marginalised backgrounds to break through into those, those senior jobs. And I see it a lot of C- CEO jobs as well that, that don't state salary. For someone who who might not know, if, if they've just like innocently not thought about it, why is not stating a salary a problem? So it's a problem for various reasons. Um, there's a really good article by, I'm trying to remember what the, um, the name of his blog is. Um, so Vu Lei, who does the non-profit AF blog, which is amazing and I love, um, talks about this quite a lot and says that every time you don't disclose salary on a job application, a unicorn loses its horns, which <laughs> I love. <laughs> and also like I and lots of other people get very angry. Um, but not giving a name salary or salary range is perpetuating lots of pay gaps like gender, ethnicity and disability disability pay gaps because of evidence that people in those groups lose out if they have to negotiate pay. Um, so there's loads of research showing that when people from more marginalised and oppressed groups have to negotiate pay, they will often end up with a lower level of pay than people in dominant groups. But also the research that's definitely been done on gender is that women are actually penalised if they negotiate salary, whereas society kind of rewards men for negotiating salary. So actually it does, people are like, well, it doesn't hurt to ask. Actually, it does hurt women to ask but negotiate pay. And there's evidence that shows that. Um, And we know those pay gaps exist. And charities just talk so much about not wanting to be perpetuating these gaps and how they think pay equity is really important. But then by putting out a job that doesn't disclose salary, you're literally contributing to the problem that you're, you know, you're saying you stand against. Um, I think the other problem is about it tending to be often for more senior roles for those, which are disproportionately held by white men. Um, And also, I think there's something about... Probably if you're putting out a job that doesn't disclose salary and no one in your organisation is questioning it, then it suggests, I think, that the people involved in doing that are coming from a position of a certain amount of privilege where they're kind of ignoring the fact that people need to know whether the salary is going to cover theirs and their family's needs. Um, And maybe, you know, that might not be a problem if you're targeting your jobs at people who have someone else in the household who earns enough that they don't need to even worry about what they're going to get paid, which I don't know if there's many of those people out there, but that's one reason, I suppose, why you might not need to know salary before you apply for a job. Um, that seems unlikely at senior level, though, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It does, doesn't it? And 
people need to budget for their lives. Like people need lots of people might move, move to London for a charity job, although maybe that will change after COVID, hopefully. But if people are having to move and relocate themselves and their family for a job, why should the onus be on them to waste their time trying to find out what the pay is, to see if it's worth applying, or even worse, applying for the job and perhaps being offered it and then finding out what the pay is? Like mm. it's just just a waste of everyone's time. And I think it just it plays into the assumption that people work for charities if they can afford it. And then it's kind of a nice, a nice job to do. Um, and that's interesting, actually, because I know this might be a massive generalisation, but often with some senior roles in charities and with CEOs, you may tend to get people who've had a very long, successful, probably very well paid career in the corporate sector, moving to do that job as a kind of... Um, I don't, I don't, it's massively generalising about lots of people, but people thinking that might be you know a nice easy job to end their career with to give something back to a cause they care about it's like that we know that isn't the case at all with doing those senior charity jobs but it kind of buys into that yeah it does and and it's an interesting point actually because especially when you consider someone who's changing sector if the if the salary is advertised as competitive to that person it's not going to be competitive yeah that's true yeah like competitive is such a nebulous term like yeah what does that mean well that's the thing it just doesn't mean anything and it also makes no sense because charities do have budgets for jobs like we do have limited budgets for jobs we can't just if someone came and said they wanted some ridiculous pay scale which is out of sync with what anyone else in your charity has paid then presumably no one's going to say oh yeah okay you can have that so it's really just starting it's starting off your point of recruitment and the first conversation you might be having with a potential colleague or employee of yours from a point of a lack of transparency um and I think if a charity is even putting a job out there where they haven't put a salary or a salary range on it and they don't even correct that when questioned or challenged it's going to make me think that the charity doesn't take pay equity seriously even if they might be putting out lots of statements saying that equality, equity, diversity, inclusion is very important to them, then I wouldn't think that was true. And you do challenge uh, charities on this quite a lot, right? Yeah, so I've started doing it more recently. So I think the main way that started is um, David Burgess started the Non-Graduates Welcome campaign last year or a couple of years ago. Um, And I thought that was... That was a really great way of kind of having, um, there's a manifesto and there's a website behind that and there's kind of documented reasons and evidence for why that's particularly about not requiring a degree in fundraising job descriptions. But I think the same, the same kind of rules apply to not disclosing salary and for asking for current and recent salary and job applications. But there's kind of evidence and statements behind that, that you can quite easily send to people or direct people to and say, look, this has all been researched. People know these things perpetuate inequality. So why are you doing it? And I think I was already um, getting quite angry about what a lot of charities were doing with including degrees in their job descriptions. And I think part of that, my very first job was at a, um, a social mobility charity, who shall remain nameless. Um, so I was quite junior when I worked there. It was my first job. Ironically, it was my first job out of university. So I'm a graduate. I did go to university, um, but I'm also from a quite privileged background. So that, that makes sense. Um, and this charity is about supporting young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. 
to access higher education and apprenticeships um, and talks a lot about how equality and helping people to achieve their potential is really important to them. Um, but they only take graduates for jobs, for any job, um, and they only accept a two-one degree. And that is actually still the case because I saw something come out from them today. Um, and because the charity was quite small when I worked there, everyone got involved in scoring job applications in some way. And the charity would actually score job applications higher if the applicant had been to a Russell Group university, which yeah. just... Oh. Is, I, I'm not. I'm not even sure that's legal, and they may. They may well not do that now. This was quite a long time ago, but I questioned it after I realised this happened, and I was just completely fobbed off with this response about, well, the university you go to is indicative of your academic performance, and it's like I don't understand how this can be a charity proclaiming to have this mission and, th and these aims, and yet their their recruitment practices directly contradict everything they're saying they. They exist to achieve um, and I just think that I really wish I had pushed harder on that and I think as well you know I do come from I'm like a quite typical white middle-class female fundraiser and probably there was lots there's lots of other people that organization that wouldn't have the privilege to even be able to ask or challenge or or push and I really and I was quite young but I really wish I had done and I think about it quite a lot yeah, I can I can imagine, and I I just can't can't believe it. They must be working with with young people, seeing their talent and their incredible aptitude, and then penalising them if those people went on to try and work for them. It yeah, doesn't, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, and I think um, I have actually challenged that particular organisation on their on the fact they include a degree in all of their jobs. Um, but I was just ignored, which does happen quite often. <laughs> We're calling out some charities, but I think that says something as well. I think if charities aren't even willing to engage in the conversation, then what does that say to potential people working there? Especially, you know, young people who we know really want to come into the sector or well, everyone who works in the sector wants to make change you would think but especially we know that younger people coming into their working environments uh care about this a lot more um, and just so many charities are talking about it now so many charities put out you know black lives matter statements where they said that uh, they say that equality and caring for caring for their colleagues is important to them and then their actions are just saying the complete opposite because they just apparently can't be bothered to even change something that's actually quite easy to change about their recruitment practices. So, yeah, I suppose I suppose the thing with the thing with including degrees and job descriptions which is really outlined really well on the non-graduates welcome campaign which has a website and is on Twitter um is that there's lots of amazing people working in fundraising that don't have degrees and if you can't outline the skills and experience you need by putting them in the other criteria which you often have, you know, essential, a degree in an unspecified subject and also about 30 other criteria. So if you can't be putting the skills and experience you need in those 30 other criteria, then you're not really writing a very good job description, yeah. one. And you're not, it seems like you're maybe not really sure about what you actually are looking for in a candidate. 
And there's a really interesting, lots of the responses to not having, a, to, when you challenge charities for having a degree in their job description, a really common response is, well, we we accept candidates without degrees, which is why we've not put it in essential, we've put it in desirable. But even that, I mean, there's quite a lot of evidence, for example, I think it's that women will apply for jobs if they meet if they meet 100% of the criteria, but men will apply if they meet 60% of the criteria. That might be the yeah, might be slightly it, wrong. It, it's definitely in that ballpark that, that yeah. men, men don't, men aren't put off by not meeting desirable criteria and, and women definitely are. Um, yeah, it's something like that. It's quite a big difference. So even just having it in desirable, not essential, doesn't really help. And also, if you do actually welcome candidates without degrees and just don't include it at all, um, a lot of people say we do welcome candidates without degrees, which is why we say or equivalent experience. But then the response to that is, well, yeah, if you've not done a degree, how on earth do you expect to know what equivalent experience is? Um, I mean, I've done a degree and I don't think I know what equivalent is. Yeah, I've, I've done a degree and I'm trying to think what an equivalent experience is. Is it like if you've cried in a library at 2am twice yeah. and dropped your body weight inside her, that's good enough, come on in. Yeah. Um, the the other one I guess that, that I always find interesting as a, as a criteria is like if you have to have had like a minimum number of years of experience, like a lot yeah. of senior roles will ask for like what like 10 years experience and I always wonder like what happens in that 10th year that well, exactly. makes you qualified yeah like what's the difference between the the nine years of experience you might have had <laughs> are there are there any charities that that you've seen change their practices in, in response to the the, the the messaging on Twitter or the those conversations? Yes, there are. So I think of, yeah, of those responses I've just mentioned, I've missed out. One of the responses is, oh, yes, you're right, we'll change this. Um, And charities have done that. And I think often, I guess this is another thing, often the reason that it's been included, well, partly the reason it might have been included is because the people writing the criteria probably all have degrees. And so they don't think anything of putting something like equivalent experience and then because the sector is so homogenous, there's no one to even challenge that and say, oh, what does that look like? And it becomes a kind of vicious circle of people looking at recruitment based entirely on their own experiences. And then we kind of act surprised when the charity sector isn't very diverse. Um, but another thing that people often say is that it was just kind of copied and pasted from an old job description, um, although they had to put the job description together quite quickly. But then even that, I kind of think begs the question, like, why is no one really spending time on their job descriptions or recruitment. I don't they want to get that they want to get a good pool of applicants. So why is everyone just copying and pasting job descriptions together? And also I think with recruitment, like recruitment doesn't really happen at the last minute. You're likely to know you have a position coming up. So it's not that is that's a reason people often give, but I don't really think it's an excuse. I think that's a really good point because the staff that you have is like probably the biggest defining factor of success and recruitment shouldn't be a quick job I mean I I was speaking to Tom earlier today because I know that he's going through a recruitment process Mm. moment and I I don't think I I know there are many words that Tom would use to describe it but Tom correct me if I'm wrong I don't think quick would be one of them no it's not a quick process it's a 
labor of love like you have to want you know if you if you if you're in the in the phase where you are recruiting you're in a growth phase like you're as an organization you you have you have resource for from whatever avenues it's an opportunity to grow your team and you've got to get it right and i think people trying to take shortcuts in that process it really betrays the whole point of growing your organization it just feels so counterintuitive because you'll end up taking these shortcuts realizing that you have like you said errors you have copied and pasted stuff you have um cut corners and then you end up in a situation where you're like how did we hire this person how did this happen and you just rinse and repeat so it can't be ironically can't be the most efficient way of doing it even though it feels like for a lot of people the last thing on their on their to-do list like it's such a Mm. low priority and I think a lot of this comes down to um the fact that often for for charities they don't have the functions internally to manage those processes like often they don't have regardless of size they they rarely have a HR team or or a or a people team like people that can own the the cohesive nature of people working together so it just kind of falls onto a hiring manager or a fundraising manager who is probably super busy anyway and and they kind of I guess they they let themselves down do you think that's probably a fair assessment yeah I do and I think you're completely right that it's it seems it's a completely inefficient way to do your recruitment because it costs so it costs a lot to lose a member of staff and replace them or to to do the recruitment in the first place so why would you not make it the best recruitment that it could possibly be and I think yeah it's really true that maybe something that's lacking in the charity sector is training and support for people on how to I suppose especially if someone's hiring for the first time it's so often just up to the hiring manager what they put on the job description and you're right if there isn't an HR function or if the HR function is really small or if it's someone else doing another job as well as HR then that's a lot of onus on the hiring manager to kind of know what they're doing with good recruitment. And so maybe there's a gap of training and resourcing of that for people in the charity sector and how to do that well. Do you know of any anyone that provides like templates for that kind of stuff? Um, I don't know anyone that provides templates, but there is, I mean, the Institute of Fundraising have recently done this huge piece of work on recruiting more inclusively as part of their change collective programs. They've released their um, EDI recruitment guides in July. So those are all available for, you know, not just for members of the IOF, they're available for, for anyone to look at. And they are about fundraising roles, but they don't just apply to fundraising roles. They can apply to wider charity roles as well. Um, what would be really interesting is if there was a group or I don't know an agency out there that is creating templates with things like reminders. So I think we are looking at doing this actually where I work now, but looking at actual reminders on templates of job descriptions for the hiring managers. So saying, do you need to include this? Can you try and have a maximum of this many criteria? Make sure you don't use gender coded words. That's really that kind of thing. I think I think that like almost almost a tone of voice document for a, yeah for a job description is, is so worthwhile. So I think 
especially when you're when you're coming from a position of privilege, which I know I definitely am, it's very easy to not think about it, and that's not okay. But having the having that reminder there up front is is a really practical way around that. Yeah, and I think as well, there's something about. I mean, I guess I'm kind of coming at this from a position of almost like anger and frustration that there are actually quite a lot of people challenging this and calling it out and speaking to charities about it and still the change is just incredibly slow and I don't think it needs to be this slow and I think I suppose what I'm saying is we could we could call it a lot of things we could call it like laziness if we were being unkind or lack of prioritization or unwillingness to change or yeah things are really difficult and people don't have the skills um, and those things are probably all true, but we could also just call it like playing into structures of racism, sexism and ableism, ultimately, because by not changing these things about recruitment, I think we're actively playing into um, kind of structures that are designed to uphold things like white supremacy and patriarchy. And I think if you say that to people, yeah, it sounds really, sounds like you're maybe taking things to the extremes and it's like, well, I didn't expect this conversation to come up. but these like there's a massive cultural shift that needs to happen in the charity sector and lots of I'm not an expert on this and lots of people have spoken about it and written really good things about what needs to happen to make changes but these these kind of three main things about recruitment which is um disclose salary under job descriptions don't ask for current or most recent salary and don't put a degree in there if it's not necessary they are such tiny things to change and wider change is going to take a long time and cultural shift is going to take a long time but these changes literally take about two minutes and the fact that a change that takes about two minutes needs to sometimes have all of, I don't know, senior management team or all of your board. I'm not, this isn't the case where I currently work, actually, but I know this is the case in some charities. You need to have so many people involved in these decisions to like remove degree as a standard from your job descriptions or disclose salary. It just shows how far away, yeah. it shows how big the problem is, I suppose. And the thing about this within is I refuse to believe that a charity, any charity, would advertise a job and decide the salary based on the applicant. No, exactly. That cannot be happening. They must have a bracket in their mind. They must have a budget for it in their mind. And yeah, they might push it up a bit. But if you're trying to get someone cheaper than you thought, like, why are you doing that? And is that ethical? Yeah, and that's definitely the issue with asking for current or most recent salary which is really really common um but it's actually illegal in 19 states in the u.s i found out i didn't realize it was so many it's actually illegal to do that in 19 u.s states to ask a job applicant for your current or most recent salary when they apply but it's so so common here and i even see not even on application forms where there's a gap for it i i've seen job descriptions today saying submit your cv make sure you state your current salary on your cv and it's like, what possible reason is there to ask for someone's current or most recent salary, if not to judge what level someone is currently at and therefore what you can get away with paying them? I, I can't, I don't think there's any positive and ethical reason that any charities can give to ask for current or most recent salary. And if you if you are basing salary your salary offer on their current pay, then you're just continuing a cycle of people being chronically underpaid, which again is going to affect women, people of colour and disabled people. So just why is it relevant? 
I've seen so many charities doing this. And it's also, it's not just small charities, actually, it's big charities as well. Um, I would say environment, I'm in the environmental sector, environmental charities are quite bad for doing it. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, it's definitely not, not any particular cause or, or size that are guilty of it. I think they all are. Um, I, uh, remember when one of my old colleagues left their job, uh, they asked if they could inflate what they put down when they were applying for new jobs. When they were asked their salary, they asked if they could say it was higher than it was. Um, and they did that and they got away with it to my knowledge. But like, why put someone in a position where they, if they have to disclose it, they want to lie because they want to earn more. Like, it's not. A- yeah. I, I saw someone, I think it was on a kind of job forum. I saw someone asking what they should do about being asked about their, Current salary and someone was just advising them I, this is similar someone was advising them just to put your salary target and they said just whenever you get asked this question just put your salary target and if there's space to explain it on the job application then be honest and say you put your salary target but like why are we why why are we having to give this advice to people just why why don't charities just i don't know do a bit of research about why this is not a good idea and then stop asking people i mean they don't even have to do the research because it's well, they don't it's done. <laughs> the research is done. No more research required. Exactly. So, yeah, and I think <laughs> this is just it's just me moaning a lot. Sorry, but there's also we can assume, you know, we can always assume that people are going into things in good intention, with good intentions, and I definitely think that is true. Like, no one goes into rec- I don't think no one goes into recruiting for a new job being like what can I do that's going to perpetuate pay inequality when I recruit this person? (laughs) And so we can be like, oh yeah, people are going into good intentions, but I'm sorry, but I don't think that's, I don't think that cuts it. Like you can have the best intentions in the world, but our intentions are very likely rooted in the current systems that we live in of systemic inequality. And it's the impact of them, which is actually going to affect people moving into those jobs and applying for jobs. So intentions being good isn't really an excuse. And you get that all the time, right? Especially in the charity sector, if, if, for example, you're working in international development, intentions aren't enough. Like, and you wouldn't take intentions as a beneficiary approach. So don't take it no. with recruitment either. No, exactly. So new section for uh, for season three of Fixing Fundraising is, is Peeves and Passions. You- Woohoo! 60 seconds on the clock, Rosie. What is another pet peeve of yours in the sector? Okay, so I had so many, but I can only talk about one. So I think I'm going to go with what me and my manager called, which I think we've stolen from someone. I can't remember who we've stolen it from, so sorry. But crappy chair syndrome, um, which is in the charity sector, people are perfectly happy to have all their staff sitting on like broken, fallen apart chairs and broken, fallen apart desks. And having to like scramble around for pencils and scissors and stuff. And it's just ridiculous. And again, actually, like we were saying about recruitment, it's really inefficient and it's a really ineffective use of our donors' money because in the long run, it just makes people like at worst ill and get like back pain and not be able to work. Um, but also just like unsatisfied and feel like they're not being looked after by the organization. And so it might seem like we're saving money and we're getting the cheapest versions of things possible but it's just such a false economy and 
also just isn't looking after our staff. And it's a similar thing to when companies are like, oh, we've got all these old broken swivel chairs. Would your charity like them because you're a charity? And it's like, no, you don't have to accept those things. <laughs> Excellent. Nine. I like that one. Now reset the clock 60 seconds. We've, we've been well, off 60 old, seconds? I don't even old know. chairs. It was actually exactly 60 seconds, oh, was it? Oh. Uh, which, is, which is pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, now 60 seconds on the clock, your, your passion, one thing you love. So I think everyone says this, but I'm going to repeat it. Um, <laughs> what I love is the community of fundraisers, which I really discovered last year when I moved out of London and started commuting and I'd had Twitter since like 2010, since I did some voluntary work for cancer research um, and was always like, oh, I hate Twitter. I don't understand how it works. I've done like seven tweets and they're all really embarrassing tweets. And I had a really embarrassing Twitter name as well, which I had to change. But then when I moved out of London and started commuting, I felt really like, and I'd also just moved into a new role, a new role at the same organisation. And I felt quite isolated. I spoke about this at fundraising convention as well. And I started using Twitter again change my name to something more like professional sounding and uh, not my name my twitter name i mean um <laughs> and started listening to podcasts and i just everyone's like so generous with ideas and time and lots of people really do want to make things better and that's really inspiring um and i think i've only ever worked in the charity sector so i don't have anything to compare it to but i feel like people who work in charities really want to just get things done and not for their own benefit and I love that. But I do think it would be great if they could convert that wanting to get things done to changing their recruitment processes. Yes, there we go. Back yeah. full circle. <laughs> nice. Exactly. Amazing. That's awesome. Thank you, Rosie. Rosie, what kind of things can charities do to break out of this cycle? What are your kind of calls to action and any practical action that they can they can take? So I think something that recruitment agencies and wider sector bodies can do is to commit to not sharing or promoting jobs that don't disclose salary or salary range or that ask for a degree where it's unnecessary. Or this might be slightly harder to tell, I suppose, for an agency, but don't ask anywhere in the application process what current or most recent salary is. Um, so some recruitment agencies are already doing this, which is great. Charity people only share jobs where a salary is disclosed. And Ashby Jenkins um, have made a commitment recently to not promote or recruit jobs um, where a degree is required for fundraising roles, which is really great. And there might be more, those are the two I know about. And I think if more agencies would commit to doing this and start pushing back to clients, that would that would probably really make a change. I think it's very easy. I have had some kind of chat on Twitter recently with a, a role that's being recruited where quite a few people challenged it, not just me. And they kind of said, well, it was the agency that put this on. This was about disclosing salary, I think. They, they said the agency put this on. So I contacted the agency and they said, no, the client asked us to do this. And it's kind of like you're either lying, which seems quite unlikely, or you just haven't haven't actually had the conversation about it. And a, so like you're kind of being caught on the back foot, maybe. So I think if agencies would actually talk about this with their clients and push the conversation, that would probably really help. Um, I think the other thing is for people working within organisations as fundraisers, where you feel able to, and I know not everyone's going to feel in a position to do this, 
Um, but even if you're not responsible for recruiting, you can just ask the question about current recruitment practices. So maybe if a job has gone out recently or about to go out and you you see it gone out from your own organisation and you notice something on it that's not inclusive, you can ask that question of an HR team or possibly the hiring manager, depending, again, kind of depending on your relationship with them, probably, um, and draw attention to the information that is out there on how these practices perpetuate inequality. Because I think lots of people just won't have thought of it. Um, and I think it's especially important to do this if your organisation has an EDI statement or an EDI strategy, or if they've been talking recently about equity and how important this is to them. Um, because I think that message is quite strong. It's that, well, look, our, our organisation, the charity, is is talking about these issues. And I believe these things are really important for a lot of people working in charities, but our actions aren't matching our words. And I think just to keep pushing, I think it's probably going to make people uncomfortable. Um, people have to do extra work and you might feel like you're being annoying. I know I certainly do. Um, but if you are in a position where you can do this, I don't think I don't think we have to move at the pace of the slowest person in the organisation. Because um, if we did that, we would just never get anywhere. I mean, you do need people on board to make changes, but I think you don't need to wait for absolutely everyone to be on board in order to put a suggestion forward. And I think as well, just talking about Obviously, not everyone is going to be in a position where they feel comfortable to do this. And if you aren't, then you can, I mean, you can send the job description to me or someone else on Twitter and, and I'll do it. Um, or if there's someone you maybe trust within your, your own organisation where you can perhaps raise it anonymously, that can be a good idea as well. I think something I did was I am, I do recognise I'm in a really privileged position. So I've been at my organisation six and a half years. Um, I have kind of a fair amount of of influence and kind of strong relationships there with the people I work with, and I also recognise that I'm I'm probably never going to be in a a more influential or more senior role in my current organisation. And so, if I want to make changes, even if that means you know, even if it means I'm annoying people, then I've got the most power that I'm ever going to have there. So I might as well use it to try and benefit the people who are going to come after me and so I think you can kind of establish whether you, whether you're happy to do this in your own organization by reviewing where your position of power is currently to see if it's something you feel comfortable doing or not it's question time the section where we ask questions we have been doing that the whole time but for some reason this week um, <laughs> so Rosie is there anyone that you see that you just want to give a shout out to because you see them smashing it out of the park in this area or others? So some of them I have already mentioned. I've mentioned non-graduates welcome, and that's an obvious one, and David Burgess, who's done all the work on that. Um, I also wanted to mention the podcast episode that you guys did with with uh, Martha Abujobi about recruitment. And I remember she talked a lot about taking hit the ground running out of job adverts, which I completely agree with. And just and also just a lot of stuff that Martha's done recently. So the BAME online conference last month was amazing. Um, and kind of it felt like it really changed the conversation about inclusion in the charity sector, not just about recruitment, obviously, but that was that was one of the things. Um, and also in the heritage sector, particularly, there's Fair Museum Jobs, which are a group of volunteers who do a lot of work, basically calling doing the same thing, calling out museum jobs which are being advertised which are not fair and not inclusive and museum jobs do just have a massive problem with requiring postgraduate degrees 
for like every entry level job. Um, and they have a huge problem with lack of diversity as well. Um, and kind of still in the museum space, one of my very good friends is on the steering group of Museum as Muck, which is a group for people from working class backgrounds working in the museum sector. And they do a lot of work on making the sector more inclusive as well. Nice. Those are some really good ones. We'll make sure we put links to those uh, Twitter handles in the description as well. So tech savvy people yeah. can click through yeah. and follow them on Twitter. Rosie, were there any examples that you wanted to give uh, that didn't come up in the last section that you wanted to shine a light on there? Yes. So I think about more general job description stuff, which is charities need to be more aware of the wording and the language they're using more generally in their job descriptions. Um, so, what? yeah, one we were just talking about that came up today is a museum in Manchester, which has put out a job, job for uh, an entry level role. Um, where you have to have a degree and well, no, their actual words were they're looking for someone of graduate caliber and I just like what does that mean and I mean there's so many problems of using that wording in your job graduate I don't know where to start wow. <laughs> yeah um, and another one I was listening to an interview recently with Josh Graff who's the UK country manager at LinkedIn it was on another podcast I was listening to and he was saying how over it was about inclusive recruitment. And he was saying how over 50% of women are put off applying for a job. This is from LinkedIn research of jobs on their site, if the working culture is described as aggressive. And I was listening to this and I was like, why would you be describing your working culture as aggressive? And why would <laughs> yeah, you do that? that? <laughs> but apparently he went on to say over 50,000 jobs on LinkedIn use the word aggressive in their job ad. Aggressive. Like, wow. There's just all these, I mean, that makes charity sector look great because I don't think any of our job ads say we're looking for someone <laughs> who wants to work in an aggressive working environment. Well, I just, I just, aggressive fundraising. <laughs> yeah. I just, the, the worst kind. Wow. <laughs> and there's some other things linked to that, which I have seen in the charity sector, which are putting, we're looking for someone who's resilient in job ads, which I know resilient is a word that's used a lot, and especially at the moment, but I just don't feel comfortable with that word being used to describe a person especially in terms of how it could be construed around things like mental well-being um and yeah other other words we use which are definitely gender coded and there's loads of there's those are gender decoding tools that you can run your job ad through to check you're not doing that do you know any of the names of those tools that's really interesting um oh i can actually look it up now i think one's just literally called gender decoder yeah, there's one I've used uh, called Gender Decoder by Kat Matfield, who is a, uh, she's like a Python developer, um, yeah. as in the coding language, not the snakes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she, she develops Pythons into serial killers. No, she, she's a, she made some really very cool aggressive. tools. Yeah, very aggressive. Uh, she's made some really cool <laughs> tools, and that's that's one of them, especially for, for gender decoding. And I put a job out through that recently, and it actually made a world of difference because mm. uh, the number of female applicants went through the roof, um, which is, I'm not sure if that's directly correlating, but the fact that I'd written the, I'd written some of the job ad and then put it into the decoder actually meant that it was already biased and just accepting mm. that and putting it through decoder made a, made a big difference. I, I, I think I feel, which is good. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think a lot of it is that, a lot of it is about just understanding that we just all have these biases and mm. we sometimes we need like external tools or external people 
to tell us about them. And it's not kind of yeah. a personal insult to suggest that your bias might be coming through in your job description, but it is a constructive thing to suggest that you do something to try and remove that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll put a link to Cat uh, Matfield's gender decoder tool in the description as well. So anyone that's on the recruitment drive can, can have a look at that. Cool. If you were going to be followed around with a sign above your head, bearing in mind that the sign can be two-sided, what would that sign say? So I thought about this for ages. And I guess it should be something like, hi, charity name. Why aren't you disclosing salary on your job ad? But I'm talking about that loads. So what I want to go for is no one cares about your charity's anniversary. And I hope that doesn't upset anyone. But really, no one cares. (laughs) And... Okay, I think there's probably some there's probably some circumstances where people might actually care. So if your charity's been around for like 100 or 200 years. So the British Red Cross recently, for example, did have their 150th anniversary. And that maybe feels quite relevant right now because the Red Cross are doing so much work. And that shows that they're, you know, they're to be trusted. They've been around for a long time. But there's so many charities celebrating like their second or their fifth anniversary. And I just... You know, no one like your staff might care, but no one else cares. Sorry. Nice. <laughs> and then our our final question from Tom. <laughs> Last but certainly not least, Rosie, what is your favourite joke? So I don't know that many good jokes, but my favourite joke is: Have you met the guy who invented window sills? He's a ledge. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like I like how you also got a little a little of your own chuckle in there. <laughs> I know this is funny. It is right. <laughs> it's really no, good. That is pretty good. Yeah. I was gonna say you said I don't know that many good jokes. It's like we're three seasons in, and nor do we. So yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is the best joke I know. That is really good. I think it's really um, funny. So. <laughs> well, I've got a new one since since season two for you, Tom. Oh yeah, made a new Spanish friend. Um, and I started using the word muchos in front of him all the time. Yeah, Brilliant. it means a lot to him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on that note, um, Rosie, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Thanks for if, having me. If people want to find more of you or, or chat to you about uh, what we've discussed today, where's the best place to go? Um, probably Twitter, in my, which I'm now obsessed with since last year. Um, so I'm on Twitter at Rosie Oldham eight, and there's not seven other ones. Just <laughs> eight is eight is my favourite number, and my Twitter profile used to be not a professional one, so I had to change it quite recently. And there was another Rosie Oldham, so I couldn't have that. Um, so at Rosie Oldham eight, or um, I'm on LinkedIn at Rosie Oldham as well. Wonderful. Awesome. That's awesome. We'll make sure there's links in the description as well to your um, your social medias so people won't get the first seven Rosie Oldhams and get confused. No, no. They'll definitely find you. That would be a disaster. I think they'd notice because those those other seven wouldn't be angrily calling out yeah. annoying charities about their job descriptions. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time, Rosie. It was, it was fantastic. And, oh, thank uh, you. Yeah, thank you for sharing your wisdom.